You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, is it weirdly symmetrical in here or is it just me? You know, Sarah, I'm going to stop you right there because we could make some jokes at this point about the usual Wes Anderson visual tropes, but given the state of the discourse these days, we're going to rise above it. I'm afraid we're going to have to rise above it because podcasting is an audio medium and Wes Anderson is very much a visual artist. Curse you limitations of the podcast medium. We are going to be talking about Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City, in this episode. Looking forward to digging deeper into that with you, Sarah. I'm looking forward to talking about it as well. And then we're going to be pairing it with another alien invasion story, this time by the one and only Steven Spielberg. Listeners for the Watchlist segment, Kevin has picked War of the Worlds. We do normally talk about galaxy brain connections with the Watchlist segment. Little did we know that it would be so appropriate for this episode, episode 388 of Seeing and Believing. You're not here. We're not there. The car exploded. Come get the girls. I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not the chauffeur. I'm the grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Junior stargazers and space cadets. Each year we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Holy Toledo, that's Mitch Campbell. You're very good in the one about the tramp in the brothel Thank who you. gets amnesia and becomes Thank you. a pediatrician. You were very awesome. Actually, maybe my favorite character ever. I don't know why nobody else liked it. Oh. We're here on episode 388 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, I think we're both excited about this episode, of course, because we're going to be talking about Wes Anderson, which gets uh, any good cinephile worth their salt excited. I'm nodding enthusiastically, which again, visual visual medium, audio medium is probably not going to cross over too well. But S- Sadly, that is, that is the state of things. I'm also really excited about it because we're pairing it with a filmmaker who in some ways is very different from Wes Anderson or mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I guess. We're going to be talking about Steven Spielberg's version of War of the Worlds. So you've got very controlled style on one end and, you know, blockbuster bombast on the other. So very curious to hear how this episode's going to turn out as <laughs> as we talk about both of those. Me too. Although I think there's going to be some commonalities between the two that surprised me. I don't know if they surprised you. I've got a, a few things in my back pocket for when the time comes. So looking forward to bringing those up in the watch list segment. But for now, let's buckle down and talk about Asteroid City. Um, This is, of course, Wes Anderson's latest film, and it's got a broke plot structure that should be familiar to anyone who saw his previous film, The French Dispatch. It consists of many moving parts. It has a framing device that turns the film into a nesting doll of stories within stories that inform one another. Um, But in this case, we're going to be spending most of our time in a tiny southwestern town named Asteroid City. It houses a famous meteorite and the award ceremony for the junior stargazers, a group of child prodigies who arrive with their parents to show off their inventions, observe astronomical phenomena, deal with various family trauma and drama, and unexpectedly have a close encounter of the third kind. And it's that last part that I think makes this a little bit of, uh, 
not a new foray for Wes Anderson, but one where that really focuses on certain themes that I think uh, are new for him. And I'm curious to get your thoughts, Sarah, on how you think he explores this virgin territory, namely existential anxieties, not just worried about life on Earth, but worried about life outside of Earth and maybe even life beyond our universe. So let's buckle down and talk about that, Sarah. How do you think Wes Anderson and Asteroid City do in probing those deeper themes? Oh, man, coming out all guns blazing, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I used the word probing there. In retrospect, maybe I should have picked a different one. It's, but. O- it's okay. Hopefully the aliens will be a little bit more friendly than that. Um, I loved this movie, and I loved that it was willing to go there and get existential and get kind of down and dirty with a lot of those themes. I feel like Wes Anderson is thinking about those existential themes throughout his entire filmography. I haven't seen Bottle Rocket. It's the only one of his that I haven't seen. But every single other one of his films has to do with what is it to be a human being in existence on this planet. And it's the on this planet part that I think this movie starts to take steps away from. But The thing that I appreciate about Asteroid City, and we can get into kind of the aesthetics of the movie eventually, but the thing that I really appreciate about it is that it's sort of flirting with the edge of eternity, but it's still very much focused on the human experience of what that is like without trying to get too far outside of its characters' heads. And it's really inside those characters' heads in ways that I found really rewarding, especially Jason Schwartzman's character and Scarlett Johansson's character. The two of them are parents of children at this junior stargazer meeting, and they have conversations with each other that are ostensibly about nothing, but really also about everything. And the brunt of those conversations are of these two people who are so deeply wounded, who are completely unwilling to talk about the things that are giving them pain and they're unwilling to do it because they literally cannot conceive of how they're going to go about that business. So they just bury it inside themselves and they talk about things that are sort of adjacent to that. And as they're doing that, they're speaking to each other across a distance between two windows and it feels all very artificial and at the same time it also feels very natural. And I think that's the thing that I love about Wes Anderson movies when they really click for me is there is that layer of artifice, but it's thoughtful and it's not precious about it. And it's all with a purpose in order to express the ways that his characters are so tied up in in themselves that they're unable to let loose and to have a good, meaningful conversation with another person where they're actually talking about what they're feeling. So this really worked for me on an existential and an aesthetic level. And I'm curious to know if it worked for you. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit also. I think I I, I can't wait to see it again, Mm -hmm. Um, partly because I just, I love the look of this film. I love the performances, Um, but also because I want to be able to untie some of the knots that this film presents us with. It's, I, I might make the case that it's the most thematically complex mm-hmm. of Wes Anderson's films. There's a lot going on here. Um, I brought up the, the existential anxieties angle right at the top because I think that's 
the most meaty of everything that's going on here. And so there's a lot to dig into there. But I think Anderson approaches that from so many different angles that I can't help but think that a second viewing would reveal any more of this film's riches mm-hmm. to me. Um, he, you know, he comes at those anxieties, obviously, through the, you know, the astronomical cosmic implications of, you know, the actual narrative, you know, what these characters are experiencing, their encounter with life forms from other planets, but also the the framing device of setting this all as, you know, what we're seeing as that story in Asteroid City is just a play that's being staged uh, for us. And we get to see behind the scenes of that play as well. And that metafictional angle really does so much to deepen and um, open up lots of different other avenues for exploring, you know, the human experience and trying to sort out the meaning of life. <laughs> like there, the, the, it's easy to explore the meaning of life when you're talking about, you know, the vastness of the universe and whether there's life on other planets, but taking that and then also approaching the meaning of life through, you know, what, you know, what does it mean to explore that, those meanings through art, through artifice, uh, that's, it, it's crazy how much he bites off and manages to chew with this film. And he's not just biting off um, making a movie that is about a play, like a play within a movie. This is also a script reading that is televised of that play within this movie. And you get a ton of different layers between peeling back, well, what was the writing of the script like? What was the production of the play like? Why are we putting this all on television in the in the final place? And then why are all of these characters exploring all of these issues within this play to begin with? And we get moments where the characters within the play, or at least the actors playing those characters, start to question their place in the story too. And I don't think that you can do that in a story that's just an overt here's a group of people who have all gathered within this town and now they're stuck here because they're under quarantine because they may have had a close encounter of the third kind, which is sort of the plot of the play, but it's also kind of beside the point because these characters are adrift and also isolated from each other, both within the town of Asteroid City and then also without the town of Asteroid City within the bounds of the play and then within the actors who are attempting to connect with their characters who are trying to understand the meaning of the story that they're trying to tell and then you get the additional layers of this is also televised and then here's also some script notes and instructions for how it could potentially be presented which Anderson doesn't fully follow through on even though he's the one giving those instructions because he wrote the movie and therefore also the play first and if that's making your head spin it definitely made my spin while we were watching it well i think the reason it you know talking about it does make your head spin is i think the wonderful thing about this film is it can't really be expressed in any way other than film like just Mm -hmm. just trying to summarize it in in words or write about it you know you can kind of recount certain things that occur on screen but to really experience the full uh the full weight of the of the film and kind of get it Mm -hmm. there's really no way to have that experience other than (laughs) sitting down and watching the movie Mm -hmm. and that's what i love about it is as i was 
you know, sitting down to write the intro for this segment, I was, I was like, how do I, you know, sum up in just a, a handful of sentences what this film is trying to do, how it works on the audience, and also what happens within the narrative? It, it felt almost impossible, and I really... I enjoyed sitting through it and I I like kind of movies that are irreducible in that way that can't be boiled down to something simple um and the way Anderson's able to weave together all these metafictional elements the the stories within stories and you know make it all ha- be coherent is remarkable and I'm not entirely sure I know how he pulls it off. It's like a magic trick. Yeah, he's skipping back and forth in time, back and forth between play and production and the writing of the script and everything else that's going on in those additional layers. And I think the thing that I admire the most here is it's really about this simple existential question, what are we doing here in the universe? And yet, that's a really complicated question once you start to try to attack it. And what I really appreciate is that Anderson isn't trying to boil that question down into something simple in order to sum it up or to attack it. His attempts to get at even saying the question out loud are just as complicated as that question is, too. There is no one neat, clean metaphor here. And we've talked repeatedly over the past few episodes, I think, about the role of metaphor in movies like this, where sometimes the metaphor is the only point. And what I love here is the metaphor isn't the only point, and it's not even really a key that gets you what you're looking for. It's just something that could be a guidepost along the way to understand what it is that Anderson's trying to say, but you can't boil it all down to just one single metaphor. And even the actors and the characters are kind of at a loss for what to do with that, too. And they express that frustration in the same way that Anderson probably was really frustrated as he was writing the story and trying to express the problem in the first place. And I'm kind of frustrated that I can't sum it all up in a single sentence either. That's kind of the job of a critic to be able to do that. And yet this movie defies that easy summing up of criticism. And that's what makes me love it so much, because it's so complex that it will definitely reward future viewings. I'm looking forward to seeing it a second, third, fourth time. But it also just rewards sitting down and thinking about just that one first viewing and those first impressions and thinking like, did I miss something here? Oh, that was a fun detail. And all of those details layer on top of each other, kind of in the same way that human existence does. It's tempting to be frustrated with this film, like to, to, you know, as you're seeing through it, and it is very complex film structurally and in terms of just like keeping track of all the different emotional threads that are part of the tapestry that he's weaving here, it's tempting to to get a little bit frustrated and go like, why does it have to be so complicated? Why do, why does Anderson have to throw in like these um, stylistic curly cues, like um, having act breaks literally uh, demarcated by title cards, mm-hmm. um, constantly cutting away from the the quote-unquote main narrative in Asteroid City to give us these behind-the-scenes peeks at the writing of the script that would become that narrative. Why, why does he have to make it so complicated? I think part of the answer to that is when you're dealing with these huge questions of what is 
our place in the world, what do our lives mean, how do we construct meaning for ourselves. There's not really a way to get at that uh, in a straightforward manner without coming across as just very trite. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anderson has to sort of sidle up to the truth, as it were, not really look directly at it, and maybe like kind of get at it with that sort of, you know, outflank it almost and try to kind of come at it from the side. And I think that's exactly the right approach. And it leads to kind of what I'm beginning to think of as the signature Anderson touch where, you know, you're, you're watching the film and there's, there's all this artifice uh, on display and the, the performances are very buttons down. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all of a sudden a moment comes where it just sort of cracks open and you suddenly realize oh, this is the emotion that's been coursing underneath the, this performance the entire time. Mm-hmm. Or this is the theme that we've been building up to this entire time. I just didn't notice it until now. Mm-hmm. And for me, that comes when we get Jason, Jason Schwartzman uh, at playing the actor who is playing this uh, bereaved father mm-hmm. in Asteroid City. So in Asteroid City, he's a bereaved father you know, dealing with the recent death of his wife, dealing with how he's going to be a father to his four children. Um, and then we also get Schwartzman as the actor who is playing that character. Mm-hmm. And in this one sequence, uh, he is having a conversation with the director of this play. He's he's off stage. The play is still going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he sits down with the, the director backstage and he says, you know, I, I still don't understand the play. I don't understand this character. I don't understand what it all means and the director tells him you know that's okay you you can still you still know your lines you can still play the part Mm -hmm. and that moment to me just suddenly crystallized kind of what it means to be human in some ways and that you don't you don't have to understand everything in the universe to to live your life well or at least live it straightforwardly and honestly Mm -hmm. and that that's a moment that crystallizes it not because it gives us the answers of what is the meaning of life but in the sense that it gives us a a a, a one possible way to live Mm -hmm. and i think that the only way to arrive at that moment is to engage in all those little rabbit trails and metafictional uh tricks that anderson is playing with throughout the film you have to come at it sideways and i i just i think that's remarkable that he's able to do that in this film it's an answer it's not the answer and yeah i completely agree with you that that scene and sequence worked for me i really loved the the director is schubert green who's played by the one and only adrian brody and i liked a lot of the performances here i quite liked adrian brody's performance as this director who also is kind of trying to cast about looking for meaning both on the stage and off the stage and not fully getting at it either and Every single one of these characters is living their lives as though they have an answer to the problem that they're all facing. And some of them are a little bit more sure of it than others. And some of them don't even know that they have the full question in front of them yet either. So Tilda Swinton plays a scientist kind of on the margins and in the sidelines within the play. We don't really get to see much of her outside of the play of Asteroid City. But at one moment, her character says out loud, like, I never had children. And sometimes I wonder if I wish I ever had. And that, for me, sort of crystallized her character in a way, too, because she has this question at her core, 
where she seems to be pretty fully set in her identity and who she is as a person, and yet she's still questioning whether or not she's done the right thing with her life. And all of these characters are grappling with that same question, just in different flavors and in different ways of dealing with it. Um, and the other performance, other than Jason Schwartzman, who we should definitely get to, but the other performance that really, really worked for me here was Scarlett Johansson as mm -hmm. Midge, both as Midge, the character in the play Asteroid City, and then also as the actress playing her. Um, I don't know. She's she's just she's layering so much pain on top of pain on top of pain, especially as the character within the play. And I don't like I don't fully know what to do with all of that pain except sit and watch it and appreciate how she's moving through the world and then also feel that pain along with her too. Yeah, it, well, and it's a pain that also, you know, it's it doesn't find expression in large gestures and this is this is true of all of Wes Anderson's films is the is the emotion again kind of sneaks up on you and he does that by because everything is so uh, so stylized, um, the artifice is, is so upfront, um, that the, that acts as a counterpoint, I guess, to these, these darker emotions, these, these, uh, more painful emotions so that when, uh, one of the characters makes an admission that they are, they're deeply, you know, emotionally maimed almost. I think that's, uh, I can't remember if that's the exact turn of phrase that Midge uses, but she she mentions somehow is that she's kind of emotionally she she's just so wounded, mm -hmm. um, and the delivery of that line is not it, you know it's, it's very understated, but the the forcefulness with which that the the import of that line hits mm -hmm. it, like it wouldn't it may it wouldn't hit it as hard maybe if the overall film was more uh conventionally presented to us in mm -hmm. in terms of, of story and narrative yeah the movie doesn't work if it's a melodrama i think and i think that's largely because so many of these characters are tamping down those emotions just so that they can get through the day-to-day -day, that they don't know how to express what they are feeling and the only way that they can do that is in wes anderson's signature kind of buttoned down sort of almost deadpan dialogue style and i think that at odds with those artistic flourishes and curly cues and the locked off camera angles and the absolutely wild colors that we get here to me feels almost more emotional than if these characters were screaming and crying constantly because you feel the subtle difference in somebody's voice cracking a little bit more when that voice cracks and that's the only emotion that they're allowing through when when, when it's when the voice cracks and everything like all the surfaces just have this this perfect perfectly composed sheen to them mm -hmm. i i really want to talk about the cinematography here because yes. i i can't s state enough how much i love the look of this film it looks like an old 1950s postcard yes like, wish you were here on route 66 or something the the way that uh cinematographer robert yeoman uh, manages to achieve that look with with all these kind of you know oranges and blues but they're they're kind of I, I don't even know how to ex how to describe it it's it just looks remarkable mm -hmm. and I think that the the fact that it kind of lends this sheen of almost like um like a Norman Rockwell image mm -hmm. um 
it, it layers that over a story of of you know deep loss of people grappling with questions of you know are are we alone in the universe and whether that even matter, matters when they are so lonely here on earth mm-hmm. that's that, again like the counterpoint between that and these just very spotless kind of rockwellian uh visuals that that feels like somebody's somebody's nostalgic dream mm-hmm. of a time rather than an actual time it it feels remarkable it's like nothing else i've ever seen yeah it's pristine the colors are dusty almost it's a very dusty blue over Mm -hmm. asteroid city specifically and a lot of it is so clean cut and just so but it almost feels like something that i would have unearthed from like my grandmother's attic or Mm -hmm. something as opposed to something that is so pure and perfect that it's never been touched before like all of these landscapes are places where people have walked and they look like that even though they're also kind of perfect and you don't see any footprints like you can see the brush strokes in the background and those feel very intentional even though they also feel like an actual human being made them um there's one scene where characters are sitting underneath an awning and there's I, I think it's like lace cloth that's over them and you can see little dots of light coming down onto their faces and I don't think I've seen anything quite like that before um you mentioned Norman Rockwell and I think part of that is because Wes Anderson really loves a good unusual face too mm. and you get a lot of those dots of light playing on everybody's faces in a way that that feels straight up playful even as they're all discussing you know pressures of the work that they're doing in the case of the junior stargazers or the pressures of well how do i tell my kids that their mother has passed away in the case of jason schwartzman's character and you get all of that just layered on top of each other in very very swift succession like i don't think we spend more than five minutes with any one character in a row at any given time throughout the movie we just keep skipping from character to character to character but the result is more of a compounding of the same emotion rather than feeling like you're being pulled in too many different directions because they're all physically and emotionally in the same place even though their circumstances may be a little bit different depending on who you're watching at any given time well and anderson expresses that with the visual of uh scarlett johansson's midge and jason schwartzman's augie you know they they are sharing like the same they're both in asteroid city but they're in their own little bungalows and they're mm-hmm. they're talking across that gap between their windows. And that I, I think is such a clean visual metaphor for the way a lot of these characters are, where they can exist in the same space and yet be just ever so subtly separate separated from each other, mm-hmm. uh, either because of you know barriers that they've put up themselves or just barriers that they just don't know how to surmount that that are already there um and yet they can still see each other perfectly well mm-hmm. and they do yeah. and they do forge a connection um that is pretty meaningful and yet they forge a, a connection uh despite that that barrier and i think that's that's meaningful somehow and mm-hmm. i feel like i would need to see it again to fully unpack just how meaningful it is but i think that's kind of the the trick of this movie is even watching it for the first time so much of it seems meaningful like there's not just there's nothing that seems out of place there are certain things that i feel like i don't fully understand until i see it again a second time 
but I know I can understand it. I know it's not just there just to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not a puzzle box movie either, which I appreciate very right. much it, too. Well, and that like the so one of the things that the that the characters engage in while they're in Asteroid City is what's called the cosmic ellipsis, mm-hmm. which is sort of you know it's a it's a riff on the solar eclipse where they you know they they view the heavens through some sort of special filter and what they see is you know a dot 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 an ellipsis, mm-hmm. uh, which. Um, can mean silence, can mean a pause before somebody speaks, or it can mean just there's nothing there. there it's just, it's blankness. And the fact that that, that, that image is, um, can mean so many different things. It's so flexible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have one single meaning. And maybe it means all of those things at the same time. It, it's kind of what you make of it. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, it's not a puzzle box movie at all. You're not looking for the key. You're just seeing that there's lots of different doors that can all be opened and you get to choose which one you open mm-hmm. and, uh, I, and you don't know what's going to be on their si- other side necessarily. Yeah, and I think that's the case for the characters who are sort of trying to feel around for their own meaning both within the play as the characters and then outside of the play as the actors who are trying to understand themselves, their characters, or even their relationships with other people around them. So I mentioned Adrian Brody's director. He and his wife are having a disagreement as well at some point during the movie too, and they're trying to understand how to treat each other in the midst of their circumstances while he's directing this play. And you also get, and I think this happens fairly early on, a connection between Jason Schwartzman playing the actor who's playing Augie and the writer of the play himself, who's played by Edward Norton. And the two of them don't quite know what to make of each other. The writer is trying to finish his work and build something of worth. And the actor is trying to find his way into a role that he is going to find meaningful. And the two of them make a connection over that in, I think it's an audition of sorts, but it's not just an audition. It's an introduction of these two people outside of the play to each other who manage to understand each other even though they're both baffled by the other's actions in that moment and that scene ends with a very i think touching moment of connection between the two of them as they come to an understanding and they know like we're not fully going to be able to understand each other but we're going to be able to have this moment together and i think that the fact that they are able to find meaning in that connection is in and of itself meaningful across the entire movie too. Like all of these connections between these characters are moments where somebody is finding something of meaning or they're reaching out and they're looking for it. And sometimes they're not able to find it because the timing is never exactly right, as one character says also fairly early on in the movie. But it's important that they're still doing that reaching, even though they don't know what's going to be on the other side anyway. It's telling that uh, Schwartzman's entrance into that scene that you were talking about involves him taking off some false uh, facial hair Mm -hmm. uh, and then going into another room and and kind of putting on another costume Mm -hmm. so that he can deliver the lines from the play that he's going to be auditioning for. And that's something that is also played with as well with with Midge. Midge uh, shows up and she's got a, a black eye. And when somebody asks her, you know, what, what happened to you? Who hit you? She's like, nobody hit me. I'm just, I'm wearing this black eye makeup as a way to get into the right headspace. And so many of the characters in this film are kind of trying on different costumes 
to sort of see whether the next one will fit better, mm-hmm. whether they this will be the the costume that they can inhabit fully and unselfconsciously. And for most of them, they they never quite get there. And that's kind of the story of a lot of what goes on in this film is they're they're kind of they're they're trying to arrive at meaning or comfort with themselves or connection with another person. And they never quite get there, but there's always the road ahead. There's 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 still the future. And I think that they're the song that plays over the end credits even highlights that. The the lyrics say, Got no hope, there's just the road. Mm-hmm. Um and you could read that as either completely hopeless or as faintly hopeful. Like there is something. You know, I don't feel hopeful now, but the road is ahead of me and there might be something coming on along down the line. Yeah. That's kind of inspiring. I love that. And that actually clarified one of the other characters for me a little bit too. So Jeffrey Wright plays a general who's trying to keep everything locked down in Asteroid City. And he's not trading costumes necessarily, but he's always working from a script. And Mm -hmm. he's trying to perform to that script to the best of his ability. And sometimes it works out great for him and sometimes it doesn't. And the moments when he's the most flustered are when nothing goes according to plan and nothing goes according to the script that he's laid out. And he's trying to impose some form of order on top of something that can't really be ordered or imposed upon. Yeah, sort of like life itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I mean, putting end, ending our discussion with that kind of like tidy little bow on top doesn't it feels feel a right. little unfair. It, it doesn't feel right for a movie like this, but... I don't know. Nothing's ever perfect, I guess. <laughs> so we, I guess we can end it there. Listeners, we both really liked Asteroid City. Mm-hmm. And we're wondering what your thoughts are. If you've gotten a chance to see it this past weekend, we'd love to hear uh, what you made of it, uh, whether you liked it, whether you didn't like it. Our mailbox is open. You can hit us up on Twitter at Pod or over on Letterboxd, same screen name over there, or shoot us an email. This might be something that lends itself more to a long form kind of response. So if you feel so led in that direction, you can shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We're going to go in a more blockbustery direction with our discussion of War of the Worlds here in a second. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies going. So this is our Wes Anderson episode. We've done a few of those over the past, but this is the first one, Sarah, that you've uh, had a chance to be a part of as co-host. So you were uh, feeling Anderson-y when you posed our Sunday question over on Twitter. Yep. Very straightforward. What's your favorite Wes Anderson movie? And we got a couple answers back. So Twitter user Unexpected Upside at Route 76 West tweeted back just Moonrise Kingdom. 
no uh, additional reasoning needed, I think. Um, just Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. And then Philip Marinello from the Substance Podcast tweeted back at us with, that's a hard question, but probably Darjeeling Limited with Life Aquatic with Steve Zissouk really close behind. Philip, those are bold words right there. I, you know, I feel like I know a lot of people for whom the Life Aquatic is a favorite, but I gotta say, Philip, I've never heard anyone else put Darjeeling Limited at the very top. That's a really interesting pick. Yeah, it's a it's rarefied air. So I did ask Philip to provide some additional uh, insight into why this is the movie that works for him the best. And he said, messy brotherhood slash family relationships are a sweet spot. And it was great to see Wes utilizing natural beauty in addition to his also beautiful artificial slash highly composed aesthetic. So I think that's a good reason to like Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, I mean, that is a good point about the the natural beauty. It is a very good looking film for sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I guess that gets at something that I find really interesting about Anderson in general is that he's such an idiosyncratic filmmaker and I feel like lots of people's rankings of his films, if they you know are the ranking sort, um, they like those rankings are are just as idiosyncratic as the films themselves. Like mm-hmm. I don't feel like there's a consensus best best Wes Anderson film, right? Yeah. Like there's everyone has kind of a different number one, and Phillips' tweet just kind of solidifies that impression in my mind. Totally. I feel like you can tell a lot about a person by which Wes Anderson movie they like the best. So Kevin, what's your favorite? Oh, you're going to have to tell me what this tells you about me. But um, (laughs) this is something that probably longtime listeners uh, already know about me is that I really like Grand Budapest, the the Grand Budapest Hotel, Mm -hmm. way back in uh, May of 2020 when Wade and I did our Wes Anderson retrospective Episode 247, I think it was. Wow, long time ago. Um, yeah, uh, I just, I really like the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think it's probably one of his most accessible films. Just, it, it's pretty straightforward um, narrative-wise. And I think it's got some of the biggest emotional gut punches in his entire filmography. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, I love how... It's a film that's kind of about nostalgia and about, in some ways, in its own way, it's kind of about the the meaning of a life mm-hmm. and uh, the stories that we tell about people and places that have since passed out of out of existence. Um, I don't know. I think it's a very it's very touching in that way. And I keep coming back to it. I I just enjoy it so much. Yeah, I think that's a really good pick. Um, We did also ask our producer, Jonathan, this question, and he said The Royal Tenenbaums, specifically because it was his first Wes Anderson movie. And he also really appreciates Gene Hackman, too. Yeah, that that was my first Wes Anderson. It was my number one until I I got to Grand Budapest. That's a great one. Mm -hmm. So um, my favorite Wes Anderson, you'll notice I'm not using number one because we're not ranking here. (laughs) (laughs) You're, You're not the ranking sort. I'm not the ranking sort, but my favorite Wes Anderson Anderson is actually my first Wes Anderson, and it is Grand Budapest Hotel, actually. So um, that was the first movie that my now husband showed me when we were first getting to know each Mm. other. And so I showed him Aliens, and he showed me Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think tells you a lot about (laughs) the two of us as people. Um, Yeah, I just, there's a lot of, there's a thick streak of melancholy throughout that movie that refuses to 
uh, I don't know, bring down the entire movie. Like there's there's melancholy and there's also a very, very sneaky sense of humor in there too. Mm -hmm. And both are in almost perfect balance there, I think. And also it's just, it's a terrific performance by Ray Fiennes. So. Oh, I, I I think he's, if it weren't for Gene Hackman and Royal Ten Bombs, I would say that finds his turn in Grand Budapest is the best performance in all of Wes Anderson. I I love that performance. It's funny, the, the story about uh, that being the movie that, your husband first showed you because Grand Budapest was actually one of the first date movies that my now wife and I saw together. Oh, so, nice. Great minds think alike. There, that might play a little bit into the uh, reasoning behind it being our favorite as well. Who knows? You heard it here first, folks. Uh, if you want a good date movie, Grand Budapest Hotel, maybe for you? I mean, it is it is really romantic. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a good choice for sure. Uh, our mailbox listeners is still open if you want to share your own favorite picks or your reasoning behind your favorite picks. Don't stand on ceremony just because you're listening to the episode now. We're always interested in hearing your thoughts. And now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host hasn't seen. We watch it and then we come back and we talk about it. So Kevin, for this week's episode, you picked a movie that is about what may or may not be an alien invasion, may or may not involve terrible fathers, which is kind of a theme in Wes Anderson movies, and may or may not also have some connections with the framing device, or at least that's what I was thinking of when I was thinking about War of the Worlds and that original radio play version that Orson Welles put on. This is not Orson Welles, though. This is Steven Spielberg's take on the H.G. Wells serial novel of the same name. It's updated to 2005, which is when this movie first came out. And it's about a Martian invasion of Earth. Ray, played by Tom Cruise, has custody of his kids, Robbie, played by Justin Chatwin, and Rachel, played by Dakota Fanning, for the weekend. And then Mars invades, and Ray has to fight to keep his family and himself together as the world falls apart around them. So, Kevin, I got a little bit into the connections between this movie and Asteroid City, but I'm curious to know, were there any other connections that you were thinking of? And is this a movie that still holds up for you after having seen it another time? Yeah, so so you got most of the connections. I didn't know that there was going to be the connection with the... you know, Rod Serling adjacent framing device in Asteroid City and sort of the uh, the history of, you know, alien invasion movies, War of the Worlds um, from the 50s, you know, like that. that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a thread running through both films of uh, how to cope with the unexplainable. Oh. That uh, I... Again, wasn't necessarily expecting to be there, but was very gratified to to notice. So those were the main connections that I had in mind when suggesting this. I feel like War of the Worlds, just like how the 1950s adaptation kind of captured a certain Cold War anxiety, um, the this Spielberg adaptation is in some ways the quintessential post 9-11 movie. Absolutely. Um there's lots of reasons for that. You know, the the way that um the initial attack really evokes the the chaos and the horror and the dust debris mm-hmm. of of that day. Um the you know the literal in this film, the literal xenophobia, but you know, the way that that kind of dovetails with the kind of paranoid climate mm-hmm. of, you know, the 
years immediately following that terrorist attack, and also just how, in some ways, Spielberg's adaptation of the story focuses less on the Martians themselves and more on just how scary it is to feel like uh, you're in a sea of humanity and you can't trust them. Mm -hmm. Um, The scariest moments in this film, I think, for me, are the ones that that don't necessarily involve the aliens but involve um you know a, a mob of people trying to jump into Ray's car mm-hmm. while he's outside the car and his young daughter is inside the car yeah. the fear of being separated forever from her um of not being able to trust other people uh of being trapped in a basement with somebody uh, played by Tim Robbins who is cuckoo bananas yeah. like that that kind of anxiety also feels very much of its time. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that this film holds up quite as well as I remember it holding up. I mean, it's kind of famous for having a tidy ending um, uh, that people often associate with Spielberg, where he kind of like maybe tries to be too much of a crowd pleaser at the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's very much true. But I think, but for me, you know, while that ending is week i was i thought the rest of the film was so strong that it didn't matter as much to me this time around i still think that there are individual sequences that are just so indelible they're maybe among some of the best things that spielberg has ever done when in blockbuster mode i think kind of the connective tissue between those high points is is a little bit thin and um you know, I, I don't know that I could fully defend them, but I I think that overall, I still like this movie quite a bit. And I think it does get carried just on Spielberg's mastery of scope, of spectacle, and weirdly of horror. <laughs> like there's yes. some there's some horrifying move moments in this film, and Spielberg doesn't pull his punches with those any more than any other director would have. And I, I just, I think that that's kind of what gives this movie power and why I was still, even though it's got flaws, I was still really happy to have the chance to revisit this movie. I'm curious to know what you thought of it because um, number one, it might, you know, back in 2005, you were in a, a different life stage than I was. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious where you land on this. Yeah, it's interesting to see... 9-11 and like the post 9-11 years through adult eyes because I was very young when 9-11 happened. Um, I would have been sometime in elementary school, I think. And so I have very visceral memories of what happened and the years afterwards, but I probably would have much more closely identified with Dakota Fanning's character rather than Tom Cruise's character. And so it was interesting to go back and watch a character who is trying to hold it together, who doesn't know who to trust, who doesn't know how to treat his own children, and is who is trying to do what is right by them, even though he doesn't fully understand how to do it, on top of the added pressure of there's an alien invasion happening. And Spielberg's really good at getting at, I think, the emotional undertones of the characters who are experiencing those spectacles within his blockbuster movies. So we never fully lose sight of where Tom Cruise's Ray is during that initial attack. We get a good sense for how confident he feels before it happens and then the immediate fear that he feels 
for his own life as it's happening. And then the guilt and the shame that he feels for realizing that he's left his children alone in his house while all of this is going on. And the fact that he feels so vulnerable that he can't tell them what's happening as it's going on and as he's trying to evacuate them from the house. I think that that really does capture a lot of the immediately post 9-11 years, at least from what I understand of them in some ways, because there's a lot that happened then that we were still trying to make sense of. And there are a lot of atrocities that came out of that event, too. And he's trying to protect especially his daughter from witnessing the atrocities witnessing what's going on with the alien invasion and then also trying to protect her from the rest of humanity around her because she is not fully equipped to be able to understand that yet. So in a way, I sort of identified with him. I also identified with her. At least I saw a lot of my own childhood in her watching this movie. And I don't know, I I feel like it clarifies a few things about that time period in history in a way that I hadn't fully expected. And it also really captures that paranoia and fear. I can't tell you which of the set pieces I found most upsetting out of all of them because (laughs) there are a lot of them and they're all directed really, really well. And I agree with you. I don't think that the connective tissue necessarily works all that well between the set pieces, but I'm almost willing to chalk that up to the almost more old fashioned nature of the story more than anything else. Um, It's almost faithful to Wells to a fault, at least in the kickoff and in the closing, like The way that the movie resolves itself is straight from the novel, and the way that the movie opens with Morgan Freeman giving some voiceover about these aliens who have been watching humanity and waiting for the right moment to strike is also actually taken verbatim from Wells' novel, too. And he he says something along the lines of, um, these aliens are intellects that are vast and cool and unsympathetic. And I heard that, and I immediately thought Lovecraft, and then I had to look it up and realize, oh, no, that's H.G. Wells. But I, I could see that also being something that Lovecraft would have written. And it feels like it rings true at least in terms of the panic and the terror that all of these characters are feeling as they grapple with something that is cosmic and unknowable and wants to kill them. Yeah, the, I it captures the the way it felt in some ways. I, mm. I think the just just kind of the 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 ambient mistrust and um, and fear, and also in in the character of Robbie, kind of this this directionless desire to avenge. Yes. So the the character of Robbie, I, I don't think it dramatically is fully satisfying in the way it appears in the film. In that you know Robbie is sort of he develops over the course of the film this desire, like he just wants to join up with the army and fight the fight back against the Martians somehow. He doesn't know how. He can't explain how. He doesn't. Even to himself, you get the sense that Robbie just, he wants to fight just because he's angry and scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, too, feels very post-9-11 to me. Yes. That it wasn't clear what we needed to do, but we had to do something, right? And Spielberg very much captures that, even if it doesn't feel fully <laughs> plausible or convincing mm-hmm. uh, in, in a dramatic sense, in just capturing a certain mood and mindset i think it's it's flawless there i really want to single out dakota fanning's performance i think she gives the best performance in the film Hmm. and a lot of that is just she captures you know just a a child who is you know old enough to not you know to be fully aware of stuff that's going on around her and to be frightened by it but not old enough to really understand 
that it's not something that her father can fix. Yes. And that I that quality of her performance I think is pretty remarkable from an actress of her age. Mm-hmm. Um because in order to play that as well as she does, she would have had to have that kind of, have a certain perspective on childhood that as a child herself I'm surprised that she has. Mm-hmm. Um it, it's it's a remarkable performance and I think she she captures very well uh, you know the vulnerability of a child and also the fact that there's not really any Cruz is kind of helpless before her he can't he's not a good father to begin with mm-hmm. um but even even the most put together parent in this situation would not be able to give her what she wants in order to be comfortable and i think that that conflict of a father who under the best of circumstances doesn't know what he's doing but when thrown into the apocalypse really doesn't know what he's doing as any parent wouldn't i think is also a very the the way spielberg's able to direct those two performances to produce that dynamic i think is is pretty pretty special yeah it's a really interesting dynamic between the two of them and i i do think it's a tremendous performance from Fanning, but I think Spielberg also gets a lot of the credit for being able to get that kind of a performance out of her. And she's doing a lot, both verbally asking all of the wrong questions or all of the right questions that are just a little bit too precocious, but not fully understanding what it is that she's asking. And also non-verbally, partly through the screaming. She's definitely almost, I don't know, like a a preteen scream queen, I think, in this. And it's funny because when I thought of this movie before having seen it, what I knew from it by reputation was Dakota Fanning screams a lot in this movie. And I think I'd heard that as more of a derogatory thing. And it felt very normal and natural to me that this character would be so terrified that she doesn't know how to do anything but to express that terror under no uncertain terms in a way that makes her voice heard and makes her helplessness and her fear heard. Like, that makes perfect sense. But she's also doing a lot just with her face, too. There's a sequence, and this is, I think, I don't know that it counts fully as a set piece because it's really just a moment, but it's one that I think haunts me where they need to take, the family needs to take a rest break. They've stopped the car in the side of a field and she's gone into the bushes to go find a a moment of privacy. And she comes across a river and we see her face change right before the flood of bodies come floating down the river. And then she starts to panic. And then at the very last moment, but also a little bit too late, her father swoops in to come in and save her. And I think that's the moment where her character finally starts to understand just the enormity of the situation that they're all in. And Fanning is able to get all of that across without needing to resort to words or resort to screaming. It's just a very simple face change, but it's incredibly effective. Well, and I think a lot of the the credit for why that moment works so well also has to go with the editing. So mm-hmm. Spielberg worked with Michael Kahn quite a bit and Kahn the way he cuts together that sequence, like you, you mentioned how we see her face change before it cuts to the shot of the bodies floating down the river. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's an editorial choice that I don't think that necessarily every, every editor would, would make. Mm-hmm. And I think it's integral for that scene kind of having the nightmare quality that it has where uh, she – 
you you get to see how s- this moment is working on her and you almost don't want to see what she's seeing mm-hmm. and then we have and then it cuts to of course what she does see and i think that's a really canny move on the part of Khan. Fanning also has a, a really great shot. And, you know, Spielberg is famous for his close-up of somebody looking off screen at something with either wonder or terror. And he's got an all-timer here where Fanning is in the backseat of a van and she she looks behind them to see what's coming after them. And the 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 terror on her face is just I it's it's a it's a remarkable front. She she takes us into that sort of there's something coming to get us. We can't get away. I don't know if we can get away fast enough. Help, help, help. Mm-hmm. That it's it's great. And then later on in in that I think as part of that same sequence, they're driving down the road at a breakneck pace, and she just starts screaming for her mom. She's like, "I want my mom. Mm-hmm. I want my." And she starts screaming, and it's like it's a tantrum scream, but. The way what we've seen already, we know like it's not it's not a tantrum scream where you need her to you want her to stop. It's a tantrum scream where you fully sympathize with her. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, like I, it's a great performance. She's saying what everybody else in the car is thinking for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. True. Oh man, yeah. I think some of the nightmare quality here comes to from the cinematography. So Janice Kaminsky shot the movie, and it re- watching. This movie made me think of Steven Spielberg's other, like, shortly post-9-11 science fiction film, Minority Report, also starring Tom Cruise, also has that kind of glowy effect that a lot of movies of that time had, where everything has soft edges and seems almost like it's glowing a little bit from the inside. So same cinematographer for both movies. And for Minority Report, I think it lends a little bit of a dreamlike quality in that it feels like this is the world 20 minutes into the future. Here, it feels more like the bad dream that you can't fully wake up from. And maybe it's also a world that's 20 minutes into the future. But for Minority Report, we know that we can probably prevent the future that's about to happen. And here, everything feels so inevitable because it's not about future technology or being able to predict the future. It's about the way that people panic when they're afraid and when they don't know what else to do. That feels more inevitable than anything else in fairly hard sci-fi. And I think a lot of that also comes across with almost the floaty quality of a lot of the cinematography here as well. Yeah. Well, and it also provides a really a sharp contrast to late in the film when we see what the Martians are actually planning to do once they've exterminated humanity. They they basically are terraforming the entire planet with this disgusting red mossy stuff that we basically discover is humans being processed into kind of... (laughs) They look like arteries almost. Yeah, it's, it's... it's never fully explained exactly what it is, and I think it's more effective for that. But you know, it's just it's it's blood red. Um, the the shots that Spielberg gives us, Spielberg and Kaminsky give us uh, in in this late part of the film, feels like something out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Mm-hmm. Just just horrifying, infernal stuff. Um, and I think part of the reason it hits as hard as it does is because it's such a sharp contrast that. You know the the spidery tendrils, the deep reds contrast really sharply with the glowy whites and the the very um, 
almost desaturated, not desaturated, but like the, the signature kind of glowy whites and light grays of the earlier film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's deeply unsettling. And I think the technology that the aliens use in some cases, I think it looks a little bit dated, but in some places it's really effectively done because it looks so hard and metal up against those much more organic shapes and colors that we're seeing amongst the human beings as well. So I'm curious to know, there are a lot of very upsetting set pieces in here. I think the one that's stuck with me the most is the one in which an alien kind of camera eye on a stock is literally stalking oh, the uh -huh. characters yeah. through the basement of the house and they have to try to avoid it. You get a lot of good Spielberg mirror shots in here. You also get a good sense of tension where everybody knows the full stakes of what's going on and they know what's going to happen to them if they get caught and yet they can't help but be human and slip up and mess up at the same time. But I'm curious to know if there's anything that really sticks with you or if there's an image or, or a set piece that... I mean, that that basement sequence is basically Spielberg doing a reprise of the raptors in the kitchen scene from Jurassic Park. I was thinking um, of that too. Maybe yeah. even better. Uh, like it, it's a very effective scene. I think just for sheer like not in my gut effectiveness. It's probably um, one of the earlier sequences where there's just mobs of people. I think it's at the ferry. Yes. Um, where there's just mobs of people. They're trying, they're doing their best to, to push their way onto, uh, onto a ferry boat that needs to get away because there's one of the tripods coming. And the, the panic in that scene is really affecting um there's also that moment where uh, a mob attacks uh the central family while they're in a car and stops them mm -hmm. and they're they're climbing on and uh on on the on the car they're starting to rocket at one point uh one man literally cr crawls onto the hood of the car and starts punching his way through the windshield it's like a zombie movie except mm -hmm. we don't even have the comfort of knowing that these aren't actual people you know in a zombie movie you know they're they're basically you know shambling monsters at that point but in that moment they're people who presumably have all their faculties around them but they're behaving in a way that we're expecting to see out of a zombie movie and when they later like pile into the car where to go he's just like and they're like dad get me out of here and he can't get to her mm -hmm. and he's afraid in that moment that they might just drive off with his dar that is just terrifying to it's me. I can't even imagine. And it's a moment that doesn't involve the aliens at all. It's just it's just terrified people do, just being scared and not knowing what to do. That's I, I think that's the the horror movie moment to end all horror movie moments in the, from this film anyway. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. It's it feels like the ultimate nightmare scenario. Um, there was one image, too, that I was thinking of, um, and I think it was a little bit clarified by having seen The Fablemans before this. So in The Fablemans, uh, Steven Spielberg's sort of stand-in character, Sammy Fableman, goes and sees uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, the 1952 movie, and he sees a train hitting a car, and he feels compelled to recreate that scene 
within with his father's movie camera and his toy trains. We actually see that same shot of the train hitting the car. I caught that this time around as well. I was just like, I know. I, I did the you know Leonardo DiCaprio kind of like pointing meme. Yeah. In that I was like, I know that shot now. Yeah, a light went off in my brain when I saw it too, where I was like, I, I know that shot and I understand its significance to Spielberg now. And he almost repeats it later on in the movie, but he does it in a much more nightmarish way in which everybody, like a whole mob of people have arrived at a train crossing. And then the arms go down and the sirens start to ding and the train signal is going off. And then a train flies by at 80 miles per hour and it is completely on fire. You just see fire streaming from the windows. I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to shake that image. And it's there and it's gone. And we're just kind of left with the horror of, I don't know what fully happened here, but whatever it was, it was bad. And that feels like another really good, I guess, unnecessary detail to fuel the fear of these characters as they're trying to get away from the aliens. And at the same time, that's one of those artistic flourishes that I think really works because it's so unnecessary and yet it's such an indelible image. It's it's extremely cinematic in the, in the sense that it's, it's such a weird image. Like you, you, it's not something that if you were, if I were to say like, you know, draw a picture of an alien invasion, the image of a burning train just going at top speed through a railroad crossing with all the, you know, the, the very normal uh, quotidian, like the railroad crossing arms come down, the beeping, you know, the clanging starts. And then after it's passed, the clanging stopped and the arms lift back up. Yeah. And it's that juxtaposition, I think, of the normal and the deeply wrong that makes it so effective and that makes Spielberg kind of one of the best. It shows why he's one of the best to ever do it is because to find that juxtaposition, not every filmmaker would think of it. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you there. I think it almost more effectively captures that post 9-11 mood than the shots of Tom Cruise wiping the dust off his face. And those were effective too, because that feels very much on purpose. And and he's touching on an image that everybody would have been familiar with, especially at the time. But I don't know, for me, I think that image of the train just sort of barreling through the darkness on fire is, is something that is upsetting. And I think captures that feeling of panic really really well panic about something that you can't fully understand i think yeah yeah i i don't know it's the the film isn't perfect but it's i wouldn't want a different film in some ways because i Mm -hmm. i i need the those sequences those images i think are really strong and you know like makes war of the worlds one of the more underrated spielbergs it's you know, been criticized justly, but it's got some really good stuff in there. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, I'm glad to to have shared uh, my Spielberg nightmare with you. I, I'm glad that you <laughs> you found something in there. It was deeply upsetting, and I'm glad I watched it. Uh, listeners, if you've uh, seen War of the Worlds either recently or when it first came out, uh, definitely curious to hear your thoughts on how it captures certain moods or certain images. Let us know uh, on Twitter, Letterboxd, or email. As always, we love to hear your thoughts. So next week, we are going to be talking about a movie that comes out of a franchise with that also has Steven Spielberg's fingerprints on it, uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Mm-hmm. And you've got an interesting pick for the, for the watch list to pair with it. Yeah, I don't know much about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny other than it involves you know chasing lost time. 
And so the movie that I picked to pair with that is Peter Bogdanovich's 1971 movie, The Last Picture Show, which is based on the book of the same name by Larry McMurtry. It's also about people who are chasing lost time that they know that they're never going to be able to fully get back. And so maybe that's a little bit of a galaxy-brained connection, but I sure hope it pays some dividends. Yeah, I'm looking forward to catching up with it. And this will also be the second Bogdanovich film that we've talked about for the Watchlist segment, also recommended by you. So looking forward to digging deeper into his filmography. Yeah, that first one was What's Up, Doc, which tonally is very different from Last Picture <laughs> Show. So brace yourself. All right, well, looking forward to that. Uh, listeners, that film is available to stream on demand if you want to watch along with us. But that's all that we've got for you this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.